This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's q and I'm shooting these Thursday early afternoon, so if your question came in later on, I probably would have missed it, so please just re-ask next week. But anyway, let's jump in and see what we got. Over on Floatplane, the importer wanted to know if I had any suggestions where they could buy good quality SNES controller membranes. The ones they purchased a few years ago are still very stiff. Uh, I buy all of that stuff from console5.com. I did have a pack of SNES membranes laying around that was probably from five or six years ago from a different store that I just installed that were terrible. I ended up taking them out, throwing them out, and putting the originals back in because even though the originals were worn, they were still more responsive. So I need to I need to get around to ordering another set from Console 5 as well. But that would be my first suggestion, and hopefully they are still getting the same quality ones that they'd been. And I, I really wish I had just bought from them years ago. I think there must have been a time right when I started Retro RGB that I bought a bunch of controller replacement pads um, just to stock up on them in case I need them and then kept forgetting to use them. So I still have those in a box somewhere and none of them are good. So maybe I hate wasting anything, but if another pack of those ends up that crappy, I might just throw them out and buy new ones from console five or try to repurpose them for something. I don't know. I, I hate wasting stuff. It's always that balance between are you wasting or are you becoming a hoarder? So I'll try to find the happy medium, but for yourself, start with console5.com. Uh, and then if that's not local to you, just try eBay, but also try to find a seller that has a reputation outside of eBay. Because as we always talk about, just because somebody has a lot of good feedback doesn't necessarily mean that they're selling good stuff. It just means that a lot of people got their packages on time. So anyway, uh, yeah, that's my suggestion. Start with console five and kind of go from there. Mark Baltrack wanted to know what my current recommendation is for a Super Nintendo cable for use with the RetroTank 5X. Um, my recommendations are always listed on the website just to make all of this stuff easier. I'll post a link in the description, and that's not a cop-out, and that's not like a cheap you know, plug back to the site. It really is the truth. The stuff that I link there, I have personally tested. A lot of times it's working with sellers that I've been working with since RetroRGB started, and they're cables that are generally known in the retro gaming scene as good quality. So any of the ones there, if you'd like a more general recommendation, if you're going to be Sticking with component video, the HD retrovisions are always excellent. They're not cheap, but it's one of those you get what you pay for scenarios. The cables are fully shielded. Um, compatibility is, is top notch. So safety, you never have to worry about with those. So those are always good, but not everybody's setup is component video. There's many of us that just already have five other SCART cables and they want to use something like a G-SCART switch going into the RetroTank 5X. So in that case, my suggestion would be any of the SCART cables listed on RetroRGB for all the same reasons. There was a debate a while back on whether you should use sync on composite video or C-Sync or whatever else, and I did a video that I hope clarified all of that. But the bottom line is, as long as you buy good cables from reputable resellers and don't add something like a sync stripper in them, which there's no reason to anyway, then any decent cable from a reputable reseller will be perfect through the RetroTank 5X. The only other thing to add is if you ever wanted the option to switch between composite video 
and RGB because, you know, maybe you just like to see the difference. Maybe you want to see some of the games blended, even though some games might look ugly, others might look excellent, who knows, then the Sync on Composite Video RGB SCART cable would give you that option if you're using the RetroTank 5X, because then you could just toggle between the inputs. That's just a bonus and something I figured I'd mention, but yeah, basically HD retrovisions are awesome, uh, and so are all of the other cables linked directly on the site, which I'll link to. Hector Santana wants to know what consoles I think have shown the greatest potential with developing not ports, but brand new games from scratch. And it seems to be a lot of the older stuff, the NES, uh, the Atari, a lot of retro computers. I'm not really sure why that is. Maybe there's just a lot more tools available. Um, there's been some some pretty cool progress with the Genesis as well. I think that's because some of the SDKs have been out there and you could use the same tools as the original developers could. So I think those two are pretty big. Um, Dreamcast is out there. There's a few pretty good ones for that as well. There's less for Super Nintendo um, and it's even for things like 32X and Saturn. And I believe that's just based on the software tools available. I think it might be still harder to write games for those. But I do need to say that this is just speculation. I'm not a software programmer. I'm not smart enough to make a game from scratch. That's just the overview that I've seen based on hearing people's feedback on this stuff, as well as all of the retro games that you see going through RetroRGB.com or Indie Retro News or any of those websites that really stay up on this stuff. Um, but it's usually a lot of Genesis, a lot of NES, and a lot of retro computer stuff. But I do hope that new dev tools get made, but it's, none of that stuff's easy. So fingers crossed that we'll see stuff like that, but uh, it just hasn't really picked up as much as I would have hoped. Rick Lewis wants to know what's the cheapest way to accurately play NES games on a flat panel. They don't care if it's original hardware or emulation, they just want to put some way to play NES games in their guest bedroom cheaply rather than move stuff there from their game room. Well, there's two answers. If you did not ask this, but if your question was, what's the cheapest way to accurately play NES cartridges? I would say the Retro USB's AVS. Uh, it's not cheap, it's 200 bucks, but it's still way cheaper than any other solution that you could imagine, except maybe an original NES console through a RetroTank Mini, but that's they're going to be about the same price, give or take, you know, unless maybe you find one super cheap or you had an extra one laying around or you had an extra RetroTank Mini laying around and you upgraded to the RetroTank 5X, but those are, are the two ways that I would recommend. Definitely not those Hypercan or no-name brand HDMI consoles. Their system-on-a-chips were not bad for composite video out. Some people would say they're horrifically bad. I'd say they work and they don't add any lag, so you know, deal with the terrible sound because they're cheap. Because cost is a huge factor with those. I mean, if you're, you're talking about a $20 box that has inaccurate sound and video, but no lag, eh, 20 bucks is fine. But their HDMI versions are all gross. You know, they add three frames of lag. They process 240p as 480i. It's a waste of money. But if you're just talking about you don't care, you want to just play ROMs, you just want a box with a controller hooked up to it, uh, I would first look for any equipment that you already own that you could repurpose. So do you have an old PC that you're not using anymore that you could just leave connected to the TV? Do you have a Raspberry Pi or anything like that? Um, so that's always first option is what can you use that you already own so you don't actually have to spend any money at all. And then the other side of that is if you have to buy something, 
I mean, I guess a cheap Raspberry Pi would probably be a really good way to do it. It's not going to be the most accurate. It's not going to be the lowest lag solution. But if you're talking about something where it's like, hey, you know, guest bedroom's over there. If you wake up in the night, you get bored. Here's some NES games to play. I would say that's a pretty good solution that that nobody would look down upon you for. Like, even if you had a retro nerd staying at your house, you know, they're not going to be like, ew, gross, a well-calibrated Raspberry Pi 4 with a nice controller. Like, it's not, you know, it's not like if you said, hey, look at my amazing arcade setup, and you showed somebody an LCD screen with a Pandora's box in it, you'd get some looks. But, you know, a a well-configured Raspberry Pi is a perfectly good solution for something like that. Um, The only other thing is you could... You know, you could always get a, a mister or a second mister if you know that maybe you're going to want one for a future arcade machine or for a separate project. And then when you're not using it, leave it in the guest room. But I, whenever you're talking about anything like this, I would always just go back to see what you ever or see what you have laying around that you could use because I really enjoy repurposing stuff. Um, I just took an old PC that I needed to keep it because it's got, you know, a registered copy of Pro Tools on there in case I ever need to go back for my old stuff and, you know, grab something. I don't have to reinstall all of the stuff on a new PC, but it felt like such a waste just sitting there. So I unplugged the drive, put a new one in and turn it into an Unraid server. So, you know, now if I ever need for whatever reason to go back to it, I unplug the old drive, plug the new ones in, and poof, I could access all my old stuff. So I love repurposing and and kind of saving money that way. But uh, just kind of do an evaluation of your full setup and see what you got. But for a guest bedroom secondary place setup, you know, a Raspberry Pi is totally fine. Jason Guffey said a while back they posted asking for recommendations about building an arcade cabinet for a friend's wedding gift, um, and they were going to use an LCD screen since the gift is for somebody that's not the type to appreciate the bulk and limitations of a CRT. But Jason saw the iPad CRT video and thought that might be a neat route to go down instead. Do I think it would be a decent retrocade display? They like the flex uh, the flexibility of multiple resolution options and low latency. Uh, could I bribe Laser Bear to make a cool arcade mounting system? So a few things about that. I believe the ones that are out now have a Visa mount on the back, so you could attach it to any stand. And there are some really cool Visa mount solutions. So you could put a mini PC behind it or under it. You know, the stand itself on the bottom has the PC in it, and then the arm on the back bolts into it. There's a bunch of cool things you could do. If you're handy with woodworking or with metal cutting, you could make your own because it's a standard Visa pattern. And you could have like an arcade stick as the base have the computer in the arcade stick and then have that mounted to it. Um, there's a t- however, however good you are at these customizations is really the limit. For me personally, I'm good enough to make it work, but it's not going to look cool. It's not going to be like, you're not going to walk up to it and go, oh, what a beautiful work of art. You're going to go up to it and go, yeah, Bob made that. It's got zero lag and the buttons probably feel fine, but look how ugly that sucker is. <laughs> so it's totally up to you how far you want to go. Um, Just remember that that screen is an odd resolution, so you're going to have to feed it a 16 by 9 image. So the the stretched image, I always say don't ever do, you're going to want to output it that way so that the screen itself could squish it back to 4 by 3. The only issue is you mentioned wanting to use or wanting to be able to emulate up to the GameCube on there. And the only way I've ever emulated the GameCube is through Dolphin, which is awesome, but that's going to require more than a Raspberry Pi, I think. Now, I haven't used Dolphin, it's been like six years since I used it, up until 
two weeks ago, and I was blown away at how good it looked. I mean, really, really impressed. Didn't feel laggy in the slightest. I didn't perform lag tests, but I'm usually pretty uh, sensitive to that. And this was also casual. This wasn't for a video or anything, but uh, it didn't seem laggy. Everything seemed great. So if you're able to take something like maybe, maybe you could find a laptop with a discrete graphics card and a broken screen. I love repurposing those. You take the screens out, heck, you, depending on the setup, maybe you even take the keyboard and touchpad out, you build something around that, attach that to it uh, through HDMI, and you probably would even be able to send it its native resolution, and then you could build a software interface for it. So you could run, uh, run Dolphin, you could run any other kind of emulation software. So that's kind of how I would go about just looking into it. Um, you know, a mister would probably be the best, but I would just kind of think overall, what's best for your solution? How far can you go? Maybe you're awesome at woodworking, but you're not an IT nerd like me. So the whole thought of repurposing a laptop is weird, even though you could make something awesome out of wood. Like I would just kind of go as far as you're comfortable with and go from there. Uh, also, thanks for the, the kind words and the shout out about the YouTube uh, algorithm. Yeah, it's it's frustrating as hell, but there's nothing you could do about it. I'm just going to keep moving on until I can't anymore. <laughs> so hopefully one of these days I'll, I'll accidentally get caught in the algorithm for a day and, you know, start to get noticed a bit more. But even if not, I'm still just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Question from Muramasa. Do I have any recommendations for a somewhat universal connector to use with RGBS? I know there's an 8-pin connector that the FrameMeister used as well, and the Genesis Model 2 9-pin connector. Is there a preference from the community or a connector I'm missing, specifically thinking of the Famicom at the moment? So this is an an age-old debate. It's probably 10 years old, if not more, on what to do with this stuff. in, if you're only talking about RGBS plus audio, that 8-pin mini-DIN connector is an excellent choice, and it was never officially a connector on any console, so you don't really have to worry about anything. Uh, and even though it was used on the FrameMeister, it is just a pass-through connector. There was never any weird situation where you needed to add a circuit to it. So I've always loved using that because then you just make a cable with wires in it. You don't have to worry about components in the cable. But a lot of people have complained about the quality of a lot of these 8-pin mini-DIN connectors themselves. Um, Some of them don't hold the connector in that tight. Some of them wear out pretty quickly. I've had a few that have been fine for six years of continuous use and unplug and replug. So the consistency of the quality of the connector is the issue with those. And the fact that it's only RGBS, ground, left and right audio, and maybe voltage if you need it as well. But I don't even like to populate that just because I like these to be the safest cables. Now, on the flip side, Genesis Model 2 9-pin connectors are plentiful. You could get really good quality ones, and there's even an extra connection for composite video if you would like to send that as well. But then you have a problem. Now, since the Genesis outputs odd video signals, you're going to want to make that match so that you could use real Genesis RGB SCART cables on them, which essentially means that you have to make your console output the wrong voltage RGBS and missing capacitors. So if you don't do that, if you make it fine, and then you make a Genesis 2 pass-through cable with no components in it, what will happen? I guarantee you I would bet a BVM on it that sometime between now and never, somebody is going to grab that cable and go, oh, look, a Genesis cable, plug it into a real Genesis 2, 
plug that into a scaler and blow out their scaler because everything there's not the right circuitry in it and you're sending high voltage down the sync line higher voltage down rgb probably not enough to kill anything but so that's why you can't you shouldn't really do it that way i have in the past before i thought about this but that was like seven eight years ago so you know it really Five plus years, I've been pretty solid about that. So if you wanted to make something for the retro gaming world that used the Genesis Model 2 connector, make sure that it's set up in a way that the cable, which has 75 ohm resistors on the RGB lines, the 470 ohm resistor on the sync line, and I believe caps on the RGB and sync lines as well, make sure coming out of that DIN is presenting a signal that looks fine after those components. So that's kind of that's kind of the tricky spot that you're at. You said you're specifically thinking of the Famicom. I think I know what you're working on, but I'm not going to spoil that for anybody. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of the thing that you need to think about in all of this is what's what's the overall better way. And the decision that uh, Tian Fong and I have kind of come to is that just do a Genesis Model 2, make sure it outputs as safe as possible, but match the signals of a Genesis 2. And that's why on uh, even things like the spark plug, you could use a Genesis 2 composite cable or an HD retrovision cable or an RGB SCART cable with sync on anything. Um, so, it, same, you know, same thing with uh, Rad 2X cables and a bunch of other stuff. I just think overall you get the most compatibility with the cables that are out there. Um, but it does suck knowing that you're building something that technically is outputting wrong video signals and you're relying on the cable to correct it. But it's kind of just where you're at. So choose which uh, choose which path you uh, you prefer. Um, you know, the 8-pin connectors that I've used, I've never had problems with. I think maybe one, but there is definitely... Uh, maybe it's a brand, maybe it's a vendor, but there are 8-pin connectors out there that have been dying in the field and need to be swapped out. So that's certainly something to th uh, to think about. A couple of questions from Alex S. First, they were trying to practice desoldering on an old junk board. They don't have a desoldering gun or solder sucker. They just have a cheap generic soldering iron, flux, and good quality solder braid. And they found themselves unable to desolder most things. Me too. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer your question in pieces here because your question goes over a lot of problems that I've personally run into. So let me just stop you right here and say... You're going down a road that I went down in that you're trying to use tools you already have to do something where you need to you need better tools. Um, desoldering braid is something that I almost never use anymore. And Voltar's videos kind of show why um, if you start practicing and you start doing some more drag soldering stuff, you could see why. It really is one of those things where I don't ever use it for desoldering. I only use it if I added too much solder to something. And then I, I make sure to use flux and do it in a way where it's not going to stick to the pads and pull them off. Um, there was a few quote-unquote professional modders showing people how to do that the wrong way the other day. And I'm sure if anybody tried it that way, they would rip traces off. Now, once again, you just said you're practicing on an old junk board. So maybe maybe you should do that. Maybe you should purposely do it wrong, rip up a trace so that you know what that feels like so that you won't ever do that on a real board. That's why I love practicing on stuff that was about to go in the, gra in the garbage anyway, because it's like, all right, let me see what, it, what this feels like in my hands when something starts to rip up and you go, okay, now I know not to do that when I start to feel this kind of pressure. Um, so yeah, I would just go, I would buy the desoldering, uh, the desoldering kit I have. It's the ZD ZD-915. And uh, I, I 
pretty positive I have links. I'll put links to the tools page in the description because that was a game changer. When I first had a desoldering gun, well, first I tried it your way and I never got anywhere. And then I tried it with just the gun, not the one with the separate station because I was trying to save space. It was more expensive and it was garbage absolute garbage i bought this thing i waited for it to warm up i cleaned it out with the you know the cleaner thing it had the right filter in it and it's been perfect ever since so it's like you know and it's cheaper so i should have just gotten that in the first place so i'm not mocking your methods or anything i'm just uh, hoping that you could learn from my mistakes i do still think keep practicing on an old junk board though because why not right um also you said uh, you're open to buying new gear and you like tools, so that's a good thing because you're probably going to be investing some of that stuff. And you mentioned that you'd like to be able to perform advanced mods like Xbox HD, XStation, PS Digital, etc. Um, and you think that you're going to need some kind of magnification. Well, so two things on that. First, just work your way up to it. You know, Don't go from practicing on a junk board to doing an SNES RGB mod to trying to do a DC digital or something like that. You could certainly step your way up um, and definitely practice drag soldering with lots of flux. Watch Voltar's videos. Watch, um, I think Macho Nacho did a great video on the N64 installation. Check, check out stuff like that and then kind of practice those techniques. But as for magnification, I used to have one of those visor helmets that like flipped down and you could change between whichever lens that you want on there. That worked okay for me. Uh, I found myself constantly having to move my head back and forth to like, you know, to as the focus and stuff like that. But I bought a $10 one. So that's probably my fault. I gave it away uh, to a friend of mine who seems to work fine for him. But um, so I, you know, maybe don't get a $10 one and try to look for a more decent one. Um, something that that you could focus right from the eyes that you could maybe flip different lenses between. Uh, there's definitely some better ones out there. And there's, there's got to be a middle ground between that and buying, you know, a soldering magnifying glass station, uh, or a um, microscope station, I mean, there's got to be some kind of middle ground between those two. So I would just kind of look into that. Uh, but eventually the goal would be using one of those. And eventually I'm going to get one anyway. I'm limited in space here. So that's really the biggest concern for me. But um, that's probably going to be your end goal if you end up doing a lot of these projects. Because while you can do it by, you know, a lot of these things just by looking at them, and then you use just a regular Sherlock Holmes magnifying glass when you're done, or something I like to do a lot is take pictures with my cell phone and then zoom into the pictures. That seems to work really great. You still have to check for shorts. You still have to check for things that you cannot see with the naked eye at all. Um, so it really just depends on how many of these you're going to be doing. Uh, I don't do a lot of the advanced stuff because I just I don't have any extra time. And for me, the worst thing that could happen is if I mess something up, and then I have to go bring it to my friend anyway to have it fixed. So it's like I could have just had them do it for, you know, it would have taken them a third of the time it took me. It would have cost less than the repair job is. So I just I, I try to pass a lot of my stuff off for, for all of those reasons. Um, but, it, you know, the few amount of times I do things like that, the cell phone picture and zooming in works great. But if I were to start to go back to doing this on a more regular basis, I would definitely pick up the microscope. Uh, it's not cheap, but... It's just one of those things like, you know, like the desoldering gun that I had. Sometimes it's just the right tool for the job. So I would kind of um, 
Stick with that. And the last thing you asked, you repurposed an old computer case fan as a fume exhaust. It just simply pulls the fumes away and blows them somewhere else. Do I think it's necessary to have solder exhaust go through one of those charcoal filters? Um, it certainly wouldn't hurt, and it's not expensive, and it takes two seconds to you know zip tie one to the side. So I would say just do it, just because you know I wouldn't just go out and buy one of those. But the next time you go buy anything, add that to your shopping cart for a couple of dollars. And the only other thing too is where are the fumes going? For me personally, I have a window. You can't see it, but I'm touching it right now. It's a very small small space I'm working at, and I have a little clip fan right next to me and I open the window and it blows the fumes directly out the window. So I'm much less concerned about any kind of filtering, but if you're doing a big job and you're soldering for hours in a basement without any windows, you're really going to want that filter more than more than any other scenario. So I would just kind of think about all of that, but great questions. Uh, hopefully I pointed you in the right direction for, uh, you know, for your future modding and all that other stuff. David Sobel wants to know if I know of any triad power supplies that aren't a wall wart. They're pressed for space on their power strip and short of using a one foot extension cable, they can't make another one fit. Any suggestions? Mostly they just don't like how inelegant it looks to be using extension cables in a power strip. They did some looking and nothing really came up. So I don't know if triad makes any like that. They might. They might have a model that's sort of like theirs, but uh, with a, you know uh, the standard PC style input on one side. You could also find other brands that are rated exactly the same, and you'd have to find or perform the testing that the retro gaming community's done on the triads on them to make sure that they're still good. But overall, I, I mean, there's just too much risk when it comes to power supplies. I would just buy another power strip. I would just find a different one that's laid out in a way that you could have a bunch of wall warts. I like the ones that are used uh, in offices and especially in IT rooms that are just giant long strips that go against the wall that have space between them. So you could put a ton of different wall warts in there and they don't, um, you know, you could fit like 12 or 13 of them in there. And it's kind of long, but if you have a some kind of stand for your TV or anything like that, you should be able to hide it pretty well. But uh, that's a totally fair question because, you know, maybe there was something. Maybe I would have said, oh, yeah, just look for, you know, add an A to the end of the model number and you'll get the other version. So excellent question. But unfortunately, I don't know if there are any like that. So I think that you should be looking at the power strip instead. Um, hopefully your setup would allow you to be able to do that. But yeah, that's, that's kind of where I would aim you in that direction, I guess. Reagan Kelly said they have a question about what to do with a damaged PVM. Well, before I even read the rest of your question, I will absolutely warn you in that I'm not an expert in PVM repair. I would definitely check out Steve from RetroTech's Patreon and all the work that he does for free on YouTube as well. I believe he's another one like me that everything he does is free on YouTube eventually. Just Patreon subscribers get early access. Uh, but I'm going to see what I could do. So the question is, or, or what Reagan wrote is, last year, after a big success with their first PVM recap, they made a dumb mistake with a second one and put a big and apparently important cap backwards. Unfortunately, it worked fine for a few months. Then the cap blew, which they didn't immediately discover. An unknown amount of time later, the PVM developed an extremely weird issue where the tube goes black starting at the bottom and creeping up the image line by line after it's been on for a few seconds. They replaced the blown cap, but the damage has been done. They suspect it's a problem with one of the ICs related to sync, but they're out of their depth on troubleshooting. 
Um, they've since lucked into a second identical model PVM in even better condition than the first. So they're trying to decide how to proceed. Do they try swapping boards or parts between the good and faulty PVM to narrow down the location of the issue and hopefully attempt a repair? Should they just stick it in the attic as a spare tube and parts for their good PVM? Should they try to sell it to someone with more repair experience? Right now, it's an extremely large paperweight that just sits there remind, reminding me of my failure. Not not laughing at you, laughing with you, my friend. Uh, I've certainly been there. Um, so I like all of those choices. I would go down to, if you're within driving distance, or, or somebody else is within driving distance, I guess, of of somebody who knows how to repair these, who's an expert in repairing these and potentially has parts laying around. So basically somebody that stockpiled these because they got them from a broadcast studio and said, all right, well, I have three of the same model and each of them, you know, one's got a, a burned in tube. You know, the other one's got a bad power board. I could take yours with those and make it one perfect one. That's probably the best scenario, but that's probably also the, the hardest one to run into because, you know, you don't want to ship them. And you'd have to really live within a reasonable time to go meet up and sell this to somebody who could make it into something. So that would be what I would hope could happen. But I think a more realistic issue might be leaving it in your attic or basement or whatever else and using it as parts. The other thing, too, you said the newer one you got's in even better condition. If you're talking about the tube, then that's something that's that's a big deal right there. Because if you said the opposite, if you said the case and the boards look mint but the tube on the new one is worn out, then I would have said, that's easy. You know, take your time. It's, it's not an easy process, but do a tube swap. And that way you could just have the best of both worlds. But it, you made it seem like the new one is just awesome as is. So I would kind of just use your old one for parts and see where it goes from there, unless you could find somebody who already has a stockpile of these and really could really need these parts in that tube to make themselves a working one. But I would also check in with Steve because maybe, maybe he's run into an issue like this before and said, oh yeah, all you got to do is trace out these pins to this, replace these four parts. And now you have a second monitor, which is always awesome because you know, now if something happens to this new one in the future, you don't have to worry about hunting down a monitor 10 years from now. You could have a recapped one that's fixed that you could just pull off your shelf whenever you need to swap it out. So uh, all good, all good solutions, potential solutions to this, but uh, you're going to just have to decide which one is the best for you. And, you know, welcome to the club of, uh, of thinking that you did something good and then comes back to bite you. I think anybody that's ever done mods has had something like that happen, which is why I felt comfortable laughing because once again, not laughing at you, laughing with you. And so is everybody else that's done that before. Alan Bingham had a couple of questions, and I'm just going to skip right to the answers just in respect of time. No disrespect to the questions at all. But the first is the difference between HDCRTs versus flat panels and SDCRTs. And that's going to get a little confusing, so I'm going to keep it simple. And if you would like me to elaborate on any of it, I certainly would be happy to. But the difference between any CRT and a flat panel is pixels versus scan lines. So each flat panel has a dedicated pixel that represents one part of the picture, whereas CRTs just scan a certain amount of times to fill the screen, and that's how they're able to draw the image. So that's 
that's a difference that you could see in a few different ways. While you can't physically see a beam drawing the image, um, your eyes will absolutely be able to feel a difference between that and an LCD. I guess that's the best way to describe it. So there's a different feel to it. You know, you could say that there's a bit of a flicker on a CRT, uh, but there's also not a resolution issue, which is why you could take something like um, a CPS-1 or a CPS-2 that has a much wider aspect ratio and still have it look perfect on a CRT because the aspect ratio wasn't designed to be used with square pixels. It was just designed to jam more data in. Um, uh, Displaced Gamers has an awesome video going over that. So I'm probably not even, I shouldn't even go farther down this rabbit hole. I should just point you to that because it's a great video. So that's basically it. Scan lines, you know, meaning how many lines of video are scanned versus pixels. Um, And the other part is the space between those lines. So when we refer to scan lines in the retro gaming world, we're actually saying that wrong. We're referring to the space between the video that it comes out as black areas on a CRT. And what you see with those depends on the CRT that you're using. So first, there's always shadow mask first, aperture grill. But the other factor is what resolution they're running at. And if you're running a 240p signal, you're going to have lots of thick black areas between the scanned lines. So that's the stereotypical scan line look. 480i is going to be flickery, and you're still going to get them, but it's going to be less. 480p, it's going to be even thinner. And then as you get up to 1080i, they're still there. They're just so thin that you would, I mean, you can't really see them sitting at normal distance. So that's what you probably were seeing when you have an HD CRT that you're playing older games on. Some of these HD CRTs, the consumer grade ones, scale everything to 1080i. Uh, the native resolution of that panel, which for PlayStation 1 480i games looks really cool, and for older movies looks good, things that are native 480i, but it makes games like NES games look pretty bad. And not only that, I think it tries to deinterlace it first and then send it to 1080i. I, I don't know, it's weird how they do that. So that's one of the main reasons why I never recommend HD CRTs with that always upscaling feature, you know, feature built in. I would only recommend that for for 480i sources, which is weird because there's a lot of good ones out there um, that you would think that you'd be able to use for retro, but it doesn't work that well. And on the flip side, I do also have one that does not accept 240p correctly, but it 480i and 480p get passed through in their original resolutions, so they look amazing doesn't support 720p and it does support 1080i so i guess that's always something to think about but yeah that's so that's pretty much the differences between all and let me know if you want me to elaborate the next question was about a recommendation for an optical drive emulator for the playstation one um there was some discussion about is the sio actually an ode is it not i don't like to get into those uh discussions because it doesn't matter at all and no disrespect to you no disrespect to anybody that has those it's just the bottom line is it's an optical drive replacement so you don't need the optical disc anymore you don't need the optical drive you just put your games on some kind of flash media and you're done Uh, so whether it truly is an ode or not makes zero difference to the playability of it Uh, you know you could say that the satiator isn't an ode because it doesn't replace the the drive it doesn't matter they all you know they're all optical drive replacements or substitutes maybe ods I, i don't know but so the nomenclature of it i wouldn't even pay attention to in the slightest 
My recommendation for the PlayStation 1 has, has been the X Station since its release because of price and features. The mode's great, it's just way more expensive. Um, and I don't really like the Sio because of a lot of things. Uh, but it is a great option for people that want to keep their original discs. But there has been a solution teased that might allow you to do to keep the original drive as well. So I would really just hold on for a moment uh, and think about that. I would probably still go with the X station and then see if uh, if in the future there is going to be something released that allows you to keep the drive and the X station. Just don't throw your, your drive out. So I would say go with the X station. Um, and hope that a solution comes out unless for unless there's a scenario in which you absolutely have to have that feature and you don't ever want to worry about not having that. And I guess a great solution would be you installed a PS1 digital or a great example, I'm sorry, it would be you installed a PS1 digital, then you recapped the power supply because you should pretty much always do that with these internal PSUs. And then you looked at the PlayStation motherboard and you went, I think the caps are fine. I'm probably going to be wasting my time replacing these, but it's already open, so I'm going to replace all the caps anyway. And all right, so now you got a lot of money and a lot of work into this, and you have original discs, and you have uh, you and you would like the ODE functionality. That's the scenario in which the SIO is a good choice because it allows you to spend your time and your money on one console and have both functionality. And that's already something that works and has worked on it for a while. So if using original discs on the same console is absolutely an imperative feature for you, get the SIO. If not, I would say get the X station and hope that the adapter board comes out at some point. Zhang Ping said they wanted to play PlayStation 1 and PlayStation 2 NTSC games on a CRT, but they're in Europe with no easy access to NTSC hardware. So they've assumed getting a mod-chipped fat PS2 and connecting it to their Sony Trinitron via RGB SCART was the easiest solution, while also having the best audio and video quality. Unfortunately, while PlayStation 2 NTSC games are properly displayed, PS1 will only fill the upper left area of the screen. I've never heard of that before. Let me continue with your post, though. Their understanding is that despite removing the region lock, the Magic 3 auto-detect mod chip they've got installed doesn't perform all the conversions required to properly display PS1 NTSC games on a PAL system. Is there any way they can get around this issue without resorting to pop starter software emulation? Would switching to a more recent Modbo 5.0 mod chip do the trick? Some have pointed them to GSM, but that doesn't work in their case since Magic 3 could only launch PS1 games from a standby state. That is a all those are all great questions and I have no clue what the answer is that's why I wanted to read that slowly and carefully because I would love to defer to anybody listening for answers to this Um, I have almost zero PAL console experience and the only experience I have running PAL on NTSC are for things like ROM carts on RGB monitors where it's almost never an issue so I'm sorry that I've got nothing for you but hopefully somebody listening would be able to post their answer because I'm really curious about that as well. And someday, if I ever have the space or if I get to work with people that we could open up like a in a, a museum workshop area or something, I would love to have a full NTSC setup and a full PAL setup. Uh, and then maybe in the middle, just test equipment. So we could just test things like this and have solid answers for people that are trying to do these things. But I barely have enough space 
for my recording equipment, let alone PAL consoles as well. So, um, yeah, I- I'm sorry. I got nothing for you, but that's a great question. And please check the, the comments for answers. Hopefully somebody could take the time to point you in the right direction. Well, that's it for this time. As always, thanks so much to everybody that supports in any way possible because it is your support that it's keeping these weekly podcasts, all the behind the scenes research and all the videos and the website and everything else alive. So thank you all so much for your support and I'll see you next week.